Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Clinton Crute. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. This week, we brought back a beloved Film Comment Podcast format of yore, Movie Gifts. It's like Secret Santa, but for movies. Each participant picks a movie for another that the recipient hasn't seen. It's a fun way for us to share our enthusiasms, gain new insights on old favorites, and fill in some longstanding blind spots. And who better to join in the spirit of gift giving than our two guests, Kay Austin Collins and Adam Neyman, both prime examples of the proverbial critic who's seen everything. Keep listening to find out what our gifts for each other were and the conversations they inspired. Clint and I had a dream duo in mind for this episode, and we managed to nail them down. They're two busy, busy critics. Uh, that you know and love, and I'm so glad that they made time for us and for this really fun little experiment. I'll let them introduce themselves. We are pleased to be joined by... I'm Adam Naiman. I write on film as a contributing editor of Cinemascope and freelance for The Ringer, based here in Toronto. Uh, As of this recording, on what day is it? March 18th. I'm 12 minutes into the Snyder Cut, so by the time you hear this, I may have finished watching it. And uh, this fall, I have a book coming out from Abrams on the films of a very obscure filmmaker named David Fincher, uh, who joins books I've written on other obscure filmmakers like the Coen brothers and Paul Thomas Anderson. So excited for your new book, Adam. I mean, the PTA book has you know, been doing the rounds recently and getting, uh, getting great reviews and uh, excited that you're, you're already pumping out a new one. Yeah, it's four, 450 pages just on Mank, you know? Nothing, nothing else. Just what just the people want. What the people really want, clearly. And our other guest is. <laughs> uh, I'm Cameron uh, Collins, critic for Rolling Stone. I would read a book on Mink, to be clear. 450 pages. Well, I would skim it. Yeah. Um, but I, I would definitely. Pictures, you know? I would get. I would get my autographed copy for sure. Um. And I'll just plug Adam's book because I don't have one. Um, would also like to plug, I don't have kids, but Adam has kids um, and they're great. And I've finished the Snyder Cut. So that's the one thing I have on Adam. All the gifts today are just Snyder Cuts, actually. Yeah, we just passed <laughs> Snyder Cut to Snyder Cut. Adam was gifted 12 minutes of the Snyder Cut. Cam was gifted four or eight or however many hours it is. I should have gifted that. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that have been amazing if I'd done that to you? <laughs> that would have been. Next time, Adam. Next time. Next time. Yeah, you, can't, you can always return your, your gift if somebody includes a receipt so, and get store credit. That's how we do things here. So if you guys are ready, let's just jump into the gifting. And the unwrapping, which we will do in this episode. Well, Cam's gift to me was Cinda Firestone's 1974 documentary, Attica. And if Cam really wanted to give me a gift, he could write on this film. Um, I mean, I'd read Cam on anything. I'd like to read Cam on this film. I think this is a film that among the many things that I thought about while watching it, but experienced in trying to research it and read about it afterwards, suffers in some ways from a lack of coverage and context. I mean, for one thing, it's a film that 
you know, when we were all figuring how we're all going to watch our gift films, it's just sitting there on YouTube, which doesn't mean anything, but it is interesting in terms of it not being formally packaged or distributed or canonized via, you know, a streaming service or a physical distributor. And there's some really good contemporary writing on it. Carmen Gray, who's a critic who I really admire, wrote about it for The Village Voice as part of a larger series on 70s films by female directors. It was written about very well on Screen Slate. You can find the original New York Times review, which is also just very moving to read because it's like, here's a review of, of Attica that's also a review of Godard's Letter to Jane and an Oshima film because they all just opened in a physical movie theater on one day in 1974. And you're like, were we ever so young? Uh, you know, is that ever going to happen again? But there's not a ton of writing on it. And that was an interesting thing to then go to Letterboxd and see that a lot of really passionate, engaged, smart political writing on this, on this doc, some of it bemoaning a lack of larger critical reception on an important movie. And it does feel like an important movie. It feels like an important movie on its own terms and an important reminder of a mode of documentary filmmaking in the 70s that, you know, I, I think feels inflected, I don't know if Cam would agree when he weighs in, but feels inflected by other things that were happening in global nonfiction filmmaking at that time, inflected by aspects of third cinema, inflected by aspects of politicized European documentary. But it's also just a film on its own terms that no one else made in 1974, except for this tire heiress, you know, Cinda Firestone is Firestone Tires. 25-year-old... 23. 23, 23. Self-styled yeah. radical, right? Like, this isn't someone who was who had radicalism thrust upon her. This is a choice that she made as a child of privilege, as someone with, with, with very specific and, I think, righteous interests, to basically, at first, she wanted to make a short about the uprising at Attica, and then she came into the possession or negotiated the possession of some footage by cameramen who I believe had been hired and enlisted by sort of the, the advocacy team of the inmates were like, we want footage of what's going to happen here, right? I mean, and for those listening who only, and this is the other commonality, every review of the film is like, you know Attica from Dog Day Afternoon. And that's not a cliche. It's like, that's what people know it from. They know it as this abstract signifier of rebellion and anti-establishment posturing through Al Pacino. And I'm not gonna say a bad word about Dog Day Afternoon or Pacino. And that was actually improvised because the supposedly the assistant director told him to say it. But there's a difference between people reciting Attica, Attica, Attica and associating it with like a bank robbery in Dog Day Afternoon versus what it meant. Yeah, without really knowing like what actually happened. It's strange, it's such a, it's a crazy thing. It's a huge deal. It is, and, and, and she, made the do she made the doc in real time without benefit of the long view. So what this documentary is, is partially uh, talking heads just after the fact, partially news footage of it in real time. Some of it is footage that I'm not sure if it was subpoenaed or requested, but she got it, which is like footage through National Guardsmen sniper scopes, you know? I mean, around the same time that, uh, you know, Patricio, Patricio Guzman made the Battle of Chile, which has some kind of footage from sniper scopes or from gun barrels. I mean, she actually has footage of the state firing on these protesters. And so I'm sure a lot of the listeners know what Attica is, and I'm, I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be a comprehensive expert, but it's a piece of history that you read about and learn about through docs and on your own. And it was a, a prison uprising that was put down, basically, you know, and it was put down with full understanding by the governor and by the prison administration, and then essentially covered up in its aftermath. 
uh, a lot of the deaths and violence and casualties were blamed on the inmates when even the most cursory investigation said that that wasn't true. The surviving inmates who were seen as being part of the organization of the, of the first of all, the hostage taking and then the, the riot and listed demands were given these absurd sentences, you know, like 400 consecutive life sentences in some, in, in some case. And so without benefit of the long view and really working against the official record, what Cinda Firestone did was said, that's not correct. She said, this is, these are the conditions that led to the riot. These are what the people who were on the ground said about it. There's incredible footage of it. I don't know, Cam, how you describe it, but it's like the stasis of the, the stasis of the hostage taking itself. Cause there were several days there where it's not like anything's really happening. It's weirdly upbeat and convivial almost. It's only half the prison population was involved. There's like 2000 inmates in Attica and this affected a large yard of about a thousand people. And then you just see the situation escalate, deteriorate, and then just turn into a complete catastrophe. And without trivializing it, I'm also reminded of something like Gimme Shelter, the Maisel's film, which is just like, this is what a, this is what a large scale catastrophe looks like filmed in 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 real time. Well, and you know, there's those shots of like the tents in the yard where like there's this communal existence that they've created for themselves temporarily. I mean, I feel that both in in fiction and nonfiction films or in dramatic features and 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 nonfictional features, when you try and create a larger statement, you shrink what you do. And when you make something that is specific to what you're filming, the implications get very, very big. And I think the the portrait gets very large and it feels like a movie, not something cheesy, like, oh, it's the end of something. It's not the end of anything, not the end of innocence or the end of the sixties or anything like that. But it just feels like one of those moments where you're watching the film and you go, oh, she only made a movie about this one thing, but this is about everything in the United States. It is about racialized violence. This is about state and institutional power. This is about a refusal to acknowledge basic humanity and exploitation of prisoners as a kind of slave labor. And I'm not exactly offering a white hot insight when I say nothing's over. The, the movie's from 1974. It's not over. It's not old. It's not passe. It's not dated. I mean, maybe this is why Cam offered it as a gift because you watch and you go, oh, yeah, this is about literally this year, but not just this year. It's fucking about next year, too. Right. None of the prisoners' demands, I feel like, have been, have been answered. No, no. And while I much prefer it as a documentary, and I'm comparing apples and oranges, like I much prefer it to a film like the 13th, the Ava DuVernay film, which is a film that has its merit and has its place. You know, they, they make for an interesting double bill, except it's not just a double bill you could make on this subject. You just endless journalistic and, and, and documentary examples, but as a little small slice of really independently minded, independently financed and subsidized filmmaking, I think it's an amazing movie. I'm so glad that that Cam showed it to me. And I just kind of want to know more about it and more about her. Her biography is interesting if you read about it. She like went and wrote children's fiction after and wrote various plays and screenplays with her husband and her kids. She made some other movies too, right? She, she made some other documentaries, I believe, about retirement, about seniors and retirement, which is a really interesting subject. And uh, I think this movie is just one streaming service engagement away for whoever is going to take it if they can i don't know what the rights are or what the or what the legality of it is but it, i think from being rediscovered as a pretty big movie from that period so i was really glad to get to to see it i feel like i've kind of summarized it more than analyzed it but it th th there's a lot to it so cam 
you want to talk about why you gave this gift to Adam? Well, I, I, I feel a need to, um, you know, in the spirit of like Cinda setting the record straight. I just wanted everyone to know that I sent Adam a list of 15 movies because Adam said, I said, Adam, you've seen literally everything. Send me a list of movies that you haven't seen and I'll pick something. And he said, um, no, like go crazy. I, I, I haven't seen everything. And I sent 15 movies and there were only two that he hadn't seen. So as much as I would love to take credit for uh, setting us on this path of, um, I mean, this is not the only political film that we're, we're gonna be talking about today. And it's also uh, a really interesting movie in conversation with the film that I was gifted, which we'll get to later, but um, I can't take credit for that. But what's interesting is, is for me, Adam, so much of what you're saying is resonating for me because I only saw this for the first time last year. It was because I was assigned um, in the wake of of the shooting of, of shootings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and other things. I, of course, uh, as a, you know, black journalist sort of got the, is there anything you can write on the moment or whatever question. And I wasn't in the mood to write that piece again. Um, you know, police shootings are not uh, exactly novel. Um, and I, there's only so much more that I can personally, only so many, I, so much more that I can rest for myself emotionally on that subject. But what I did instead was I made two long lists of films that uh, showed black resistance in some way. And in the process, and, and tried to find things that were more rare. I didn't just want it to be, I mean, you know, there's a version of that that you, I think we all saw a lot of like 10 streaming things on Netflix that have black people in them. Um, and there's a version of that that looks a lot like the anti-racist reading list. That's basically Robin D'Angelo times 10 and put some photos on it and put it in the internet. Um, but I went out of my way to try to find things that we hadn't all seen. And just in the process of writing that was like, I wonder if Attica's anywhere because, because of Dog Day Afternoon, because of uh, you know, knowing that this film is out there. And also because I think a lot of us sort of sit and wait for someone to put things on YouTube. I just looked it up on YouTube. This is what I did with Wanda for the first time when I, when I finally saw that, um, you know, before the restoration was released, et cetera. Um, I just sort of at random, and they're, they're great, just people should know that there are great um, socialists and, and left and other uh accounts on YouTube whose business it seems to be, um, by which I don't mean that it's lucrative, who's, who's, who's uh, up, you know, they just upload these rare films. Labor of love as Yeah, lab labor of love, exactly. And I saw it for the first time and I was, I mean, I, I just think it's uh, so immensely moving. And the thing that stood out to me for watching it for this was just the emphasis that Firestone and and you know the the prisoners all kind of strike um, this emphasis on the phrase human being and this emphasis on you could track through the film who calls them inmates and who calls them human beings. I think when I was watching it for the first time, I was first of all just immediately sort of just surprised by the discursive power of it, the way that Firestone. Um, weaves in, you know, the perspectives from 
the McKay Commission, where these things are sort of being um, in kind of a, a literal postmortem of the event in which people are trying to set the record straight in that official venue. Um, the records that you get from the inmates, their explanations of their motivations. But I think the first time I saw it, and again this time, the really surprising turn was the hostages, like the, the employees of the prison and the ways that they spoke about their treatment at the hands of the prisoners. That for me was the first time I think that it really, you know, Adam, what you're talking about with this, with this, you know, the, the official narrative, the cover up of the narrative, um, the role that the media played in sort of taking official word at what happened in, for example, um, kind of going with the story that, you know, um, the inmates had 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 killed some of the hostages and all these things. Um, it it really, I think the power of the film was crystallized for me in the first of the prison employees that we see talking about, talking on behalf of the inmates. He's someone who actually, in the way that he speaks, um, calls them prisoners and then corrects himself and says human beings. Seeing him take on their language in that way um, seeing the affect of the way that he speaks about this, um, the ways that he seems to know that he's going against what is already going to become the official narrative. This is before the shooting even starts. Um, and then moments where you hear, I think it's maybe uh, either um, media footage or commission audio where it's the the clear outlining of every kind of weapon used, where they all came from, um, what kinds of guns, how many guns, how many troops, all these things. Just the sense of testimonies being pitted against each other, seeing the way that the official narrative is being constructed in the moment, but seeing it be constructed also in hindsight through these commissions, just the way that it's all jostled up. Um, you know, it just really, I, and I think, I think importantly, and I think this is part of why I, I uh, was sort of taken aback by the connections to the film that I was gifted, um, the emphasis on solidarity among, among, you know, among the inmates who are making these demands, the emphasis on, I mean, the ways that you, you hear some of the, some of the black men saying, you know, there's some, there's some weird shit going on in this prison amongst all of us, like racially, otherwise there are differences, but that doesn't matter right now because we are all trying to fight for at, at just in a very basic sense to be treated like humans. And to hear, to hear the prison employees say, we've been living in the conditions that the prisoners have been living under and we get it now. And they, um, I think you know, they say that the prisoners have been treating them better than- Yeah but they've been getting medical care, all these things, just, it's just, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, and, and to see all of that, to get all of that, and then to kind of get the footage of, of the, the shooting starting through the rifle scope, um, as people are narrating their experience of thinking it was rubber bullets at first, and then seeing people kind of explode before their eyes, it's just, it's, it's, you know, the power of testimony in this, the power of solidarity in this, and a real harsh critique of, of not only the state, but also the media. Um, 
just rhetorically and discursively, it's just such a, you know, I mean, an early 20 something made this. So uh, fuck the rest of us because. <laughs> I, I mean, what you I mean, man. What you, what you both just said, it's also making me think of uh, visibility vis-a-vis prisons. You know, I think that there is this, obviously prisons are like constantly surveilled spaces, but also ones that are so close to the public, uh, you know, how the atrocities that take place within are usually only dramatized, narrated, reenacted, uh, you know, in a sense. And that came to my mind because of, you know, Time, Garrett Bradley's Time, which is, you know, one of the great documentaries of last year, just got nominated for an Oscar. And I uh, yeah, talked- <laughs> Sorry, I and have I to was, be <laughs> Of course, yeah, shout out to- shout the out Oscars, to- but Garrett, you do that. I know. But I remember I, I talked to her about it and she, um, you know, she said how that was one of the things that she was trying to do with time is capture this unrepresentable reality through its collateral on the intimate lives of, you know, incarcerated families. Uh, she has this beautiful drone shot that goes over the Angola prison and that can't even capture the scale of the prison, uh, even from such a height. Um, and I saw another film this year called The Sky is Red, uh, which I think is a Chilean film. And it's about this uh, prison fire in 2010 that killed, I forget the number, but you know, it, it killed a lot of inmates in, in a prison there. And it's all reconstructed. Uh, it uses this footage that was used in the investigation of inmates and survivors reenacting what happened, uh, surveillance footage, which is very blurry and footage of people and relatives standing outside the prison building and they can only see the smoke and they can hear the sounds, but it's just a block of concrete, right? Um, And so there's this, I don't know, this dynamic, right? Of this complete invisibility to the outside world, to the world of justice in a sense, and this constant lack of privacy. But what's interesting about this film, about Attica, is that it's made visible. There's footage of these acts and she tells this story in a way that like implicates the state completely. It's incredible that uh, Rockefeller like was able to do this and get away with it. And it makes you, it leaves you like enraged. Yeah, and Devika, I mean, what one thing you're saying is also um, making me remember that I think it's the rifle scope image when we see it. There's there's a clear a title on the screen that says no news cameras were allowed. Like basically, once the shooting started there was in that moment an effort to suppress um, the image of this thing. Um, And for all the things that we do get to see, to literally have to resort to the rifle scope image to see something like the truth of what happened um, and to, you know, still photographs of dead bodies. And what I was, well, on that point, I mean, what what you're saying, Cam, and and Davika talking about visibility, I mean, the idea that what disappears at that point when we're seeing the shooting is what disappears is the close-up, right? What disappears is the question. What disappears is any sense of interaction or any sense of opinion. And that's the nature of what we're seeing, right? This is shoot first and don't ask questions at all, you know? And the the meaning of shoot becomes double because it's a rifle sight that's also a a camera site, but you know, in that moment, of course, you can't see anything and you can't see anything close up because you exist at a predatory distance 
and you see the the dehumanization belongs to the shooter of the gun, not the shooter of the film. The film is using this in the absence of anything else to be able to see. And it's just so brilliantly put together that way. I mean, when I teach documentary in Toronto, there are two films I show back to back from the late 60s, early 70s. I show Titty Cut Follies and Hearts and Minds. And without digressing too much into either of those movies, this movie exists at an intersection of those two and then off to the side because it has a whole bunch of other, I don't want, I was about to use the word baggage. Baggage isn't the right word. It has a whole bunch of other weight, right? Because it's more about race in America than either of those two movies. Not that those two movies aren't, but it, this one definitely is. And the Attica as an event is larger than what Titty Cut is about and smaller, I guess, in a way than the Vietnam War. But she has some of Wiseman's feeling for how institutions work without what that movie does, which is rare for Wiseman, which is it's quite grotesque. And she has some of what Davis has in Hearts and Minds, which is a question of the official narrative, but without Davis's sarcasm. Hearts and Minds it made Michael Moore's career because it's documentary filmmaking as sarcasm. It's powerful, but it's glib. And there's nothing glib about Attica. And I don't know if that's her youth, but it's youth in concert with maturity because she doesn't score a single cheap shot. And she could, you know, she doesn't go the pop culture route. She doesn't go the Sado Voce aside route. You know, she doesn't do even she she was a fan or, or an assistant to Emil D'Antonio, right? And she doesn't do what he does. I mean, Emil D'Antonio is like, like Davis making hearts and minds. It's the documentary of sarcasm, the associational montage of, you know, putting Richard Nixon in these, you know, in these Kuleshov-like juxtaposition. She doesn't do any of that. It is such a serious-minded movie. And my admiration for her, Cam corrected me when he said she was 23. I mean, that's just amazing for a filmmaker that 23, age. 23, 25. Right? It's amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I want to take that class, by the way. So hit me up with the details. Thanks. Maybe this is an opportune moment to turn to a Toronto, to a Canadian documentary. You mentioned that later in her life, she she directed some documentaries about uh, retired people. And Adam actually gifted me a movie by a filmmaker who made a couple of movies about retired people and older people. Um, but the film that, that you That was gift- a much more convoluted segue than mine. Yeah, my, conv- my segues are always very convoluted. And <laughs> like, I'm making these A like, to like F. <laughs> yeah, that's how, that's how it goes. Um, why don't you do your segue? Let's see what you got. A segue off. Segue off. Yeah. So Adam gifted me Warrendale, the 1967 uh, documentary by Alan King. Adam had just been talking about Titicut Follies. And in my mind, I'd always kind of associated these films. And so I'd always been kind of intimidated by Warrendale because of that grotesque aspect of Titicut Follies um, that he mentioned. So actually, in full disclosure, Adam sent me four Canadian films, I think. he wanted... Four Toronto films. I, would... I was determined. Ah, I see. Okay, nationalism, let's go. Keeping it super local. <laughs> He's supporting local businesses. Local businesses, exactly. So yeah, he, he assigned four different movies to me or gave me the option to choose from amongst four. And I chose Warrendale. Um, I'd seen some of the other ones, including The Silent Partner. So Warrendale, though, is sort of a cinema verite documentary about a home for emotionally disturbed children outside of Toronto in, in the mid-60s. It kind of focuses in on a couple of kids, but it really is just shows how the employees of Warrendale manage the, the 
problems that these kids have. And these kids have significant problems. There's a lot of screaming. There's a lot of yelling. There are moments that are very intense. But what makes this movie uh, not grotesque is the reaction of the Warrendale employees who are never, never violent and never dismissive of their emotions and seem to just have this incredible empathy and incredible openness to the feelings that these, that these children are trying to express. It's almost superhuman. The story of Warrendale is interesting too, but uh, the film kind of just focuses on these details, these day -to, the day-to-day -day lives of these children and the day-to-day -day lives of these employees. And um, the film was apparently rejected from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. They were, it was made, it was funded by uh, the CBC, but then they reject, they didn't want to screen it because of the cursing, particularly I think by this one, maybe 10 year old boy named Tony, who's like, you know, I just kept saying throughout the movie to my wife while we were watching, like, God, poor Tony, this poor kid, like, he just says, he just is a troubled little guy. So they, they refused to, to screen it, but Alan King retained the rights to, for international screening, I think, and sent it to festivals. And I believe it won an award at Cannes and was famously declared to be a great film by, uh, by Renoir. Yeah, when I uh, interviewed Alan a few times towards the end of his life, he showed me that letter that, Ren that Renoir sent him. It's one of the great pieces of, I mean, it's a mythical piece of correspondence, right? Where Renoir basically said, this is like the greatest film I've ever seen, you know, he sent it to him as a, as a, as a letter. And that was a, that was a very prized possession for him. So I think that, but I think there's an interesting, like the same way that Renoir is like, so, so open to different aspects of human life, this this film is not didactic. It doesn't take, it's not telling you that this is the right way to do this. It's just sort of incredibly empathetic. It gets very close, uncomfortably close to these people's experience, to these children's experience and to the, to the employee's experience. Well, one of the reasons that I wanted to gift it, it's a movie that I, I, I try gifting a lot because we all give movies as gifts, even when we're not fortunate enough to be invited on podcasts, right? We, we say to people, you should watch this. Cam is someone who I, I, I told I thought should see Warrendale. I've recommended it to a lot of friends. When I show it to students, I want to know what they think of the holding technique. Do you want to explain what that is quickly? Yeah. I mean, in the film, without any, because this is shot like, like the vast majority of King's documentary films in the kind of direct cinema fashion that I wouldn't say he popularized or that Wiseman popularized. It can't be reduced to either one of them. But they were, let's say, two of the more assiduous Western practitioners of this towards the late 60s. They kind of came up in concert with each other. But that idea of no voiceover, no explanation, no narration. King had cultivated that in some of his TV docs for the CBC, including a film called Skid Row about poverty in Vancouver, where he's originally from or where he worked from originally. So in Warrendale, you, you're not told anything about the institution. And when the kid, the first girl, starts having her first fit, which is an amazing scene because if you listen in the background, you can hear the Rolling Stones, I Can't Get No Satisfaction, which is such a generational anthem, you know? And that's not staged. That's just found, that you have this rock and roll song for her bad mood. It's like some other kid in, the, in a different room is blasting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And what you see is that she's moody, and angry and very physical. And that their response to this is basically to just bind her to them and hold her. And as a viewer, it's very discombobulating because no one has come on screen and said, holding is what we do here. This is a method that's been talked about in terms of its 
splitting the difference between you know physical harm and and psychological help and this idea that you're not going it, to it's restraining them mostly so that they don't hurt themselves but it's also standing in for a closeness that they obviously feel that they don't have there's this post-mortem of that uh, of that scene where you have the authorities of the school i think john brown maybe the guy who founded the school talking and being like well did you like was it appropriate to do holding in this moment and they kind of afterwards you get this idea that holding is this thing that they do to, to make sure that they don't hurt themselves but also as you said to make them feel safe but when they're discussing it they're discussing it as a group that has already adopted the principle and the, the the idea of why this is being done is this being done anywhere else what does anyone think of this and does it work is never addressed and so you know king who was famous for scouting locations and spending an awful lot of time there then disappearing i mean he joked when i interviewed him that you know he feels he directs his movies but he must be one of the only people who's ever directed a movie not being there yeah i read that he was the kids would joke around too much with him right on this one so he so he just basically was like all right I'm, the crew can take can do this i'm gonna leave and come back after they're done you know well you know wiseman famously is physically present a lot of the time and physically part of the filmmaking process i mean alan king just bounced you know and on that note i gotta take i gotta take off from the podcast guys <laughs> Uh, it does these interesting things where it it doesn't actually try to be invisible. At one point, one of the doctors says to the kids, you know, oh, there's someone here from Alan King Productions. Like it's telling you that they're there. It's not pretending that invisible thing where it's like, this is a fly on the wall. I mean, it's not a fly on the wall. It's a documentary crew in the middle of an institution. And so I always, when I was talking about gifting it to students, I want to see how they react to the holding and I want to see how they react to the knowledge, which I don't think is disqualifying, but it's complicating, that the movie's timeline is out of order. And that that incredible arc you have with the cook, and this woman who cooks for the kids, and then she dies, and this leads to this incredible climax where all this grief and displaced rage they have about their own situations, their families, you know, whatever they've lost, all comes out in this fugue of grief over the death of the cook. It's a climax to the film, but it happened very, very early in the shooting process. And and King is as not guilty, but he's as capable, I guess, of shaping direct cinema dramatically as a lot of other documentary filmmakers who don't have that pretense to transparency. And I just kind of ask my students what they think of that, not like as the pass fail grade or like this movie is bad now, but that, you know, direct cinema is as absolutely subject to manipulation and structure as anything else. And then if you learn that, you can appreciate it. As opposed to just taking the orthodoxy at face value, where it's like, oh, this is real. This is exactly how it happened. And it's not. Alan was always very interested in systems and how in group dynamics. If you look at his later movies, whether it was in hospitals or on communes or uh, or in even in terms of gang violence in toronto he's extremely interested in groups he's very uninterested in individuals and interested in individuals insofar as they function within the group and that's why with warrendale when you ask people about it their memories are of this teeming mass of children more than about necessarily individuals it's like a group study and there was a wonderful doc a few years ago called approaching the elephant I don't know if any of you have seen, which is a, a terrific movie that I thought was the closest I'd felt about an experimental school that was about as close as I'd felt to getting that idea of group pedagogical dynamics as as Warrendale. And they would make a, a lovely double bill. I have one question, Adam, uh, since you gave Clint a list of Toronto films. I'm curious if you could maybe talk a little bit about how this film 
fits in as a Toronto film or what its place was at that historical time in the tradition of filmmaking in that region? Well, we in Canada are known for having what is called a documentary tradition. We didn't have studios. We had the NFB, this very kind of assembly line. Here's how you make a voice of God documentary. And then I think the Quebecois filmmakers like Pierre Perrault worked against that with this direct cinema naturalism, you know, and then Alan King was part of that as well. And so as a result, a lot of our heroes in the first half of the 20th century as filmmakers in Canada are documentary filmmakers. Alan King has pride of place among those heroes and he deserves it. I think he's my pick for the greatest English Canadian, English language Canadian filmmaker of all time. And that sort of then filters down into the present, we might say, in some of these youngish, I'm not going to call them young because I want to point out that they're getting old too, just like me, but some of the youngish Toronto filmmakers like Kazik Gravinsky, who made Anne at 13,000 Feet, which is a movie that I think was covered in film comment, poised, I think, to be a breakthrough Toronto movie until the last year's stuff happened, but which is a film that has a very observational documentary style in the service of a fictional narrative. So Canada doesn't have an exclusive purchase on hybridity or anything. And when we get to Kiros to me next, we're going to look at another director who's mixed those things and been doing it for a long time. But I think that if there is something in newish-ish, youngish Toronto cinema that has a mix of documentary aesthetic and dramatic shaping, that's very much under the sign of of Alan King. And I know that Warrendale is a movie, it's not that everyone who sees it likes it, and I don't think you need to totalize like that, but a lot of filmmakers I know who have seen it are very affected by it. And some of them happen to be Canadian filmmakers and local filmmakers. So that influence is there, even if it's not direct homage or, or tribute. And there was a Eclipse Box series of King sets that films that Michael Koreski did the notes for that I think really raised his profile in the States when Criterion and Eclipse put that out. Because before that, you didn't see a lot of American writing on Alan King. And now I think there's a bit more, even if he's brought up as a corollary to Frederick Wiseman, at least he's brought up. And I know the two of them really respected and were aware of each other's work. Certainly Alan King was reverent of Wiseman when I would ask him. And I think that that goes both ways, I think. You're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film, each one thoughtfully handpicked. From new directors to award winners, beautiful, interesting, incredible movies. There's always something new to discover. Throughout this month, Mubi has been spotlighting the pink films of the female Japanese producer Keiko Sato. These are really unusual films that combine erotics with experimental aesthetics and psychodrama. I'm excited to see Abnormal Family next week, which is a parody of Ozu's family dramas. I wanted to highlight Eagle Pinnell's 1978 breakthrough, The Whole Shooting Match, streaming now on movie. Pinnell is an important and sometimes overlooked figure in American independent cinema, and it's great to be able to stream this earthy and very funny look at the lives of two West Texas barflies. If you'd like to check out these films too, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at mubi.com slash filmcomment. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmcomment for a whole month of great cinema for free. Well, we've talked about pedagogy, children, documentary, discipline, band films. So, you know, perfect segue to the gift I gave to Cam. 
Yeah, so I, I was excited to talk about this. The film uh, is First Case, Second Case by Kurosami. And um, this was sort of one of many of his films. I mentioned before talking about Attica, the, the movies that I kind of just would randomly look up on YouTube. Um, in fact, I saw one for the first time right after this, the um, Two Solutions to Two Solutions for One Problem, which is on YouTube, the five minute short, because I, I found it mentioned in some of the writing on this film and found it actually useful to watch in this context. But this film is from 1979 and it's, it's kind of classic Kurosami, educational, discursive um, classroom. You know, it was, it was commissioned, I think, by the Ministry of Education. Um, and basically the, the basic setup uh, that was there in 1979 before the revolution was uh, a teacher is trying to teach a student in the class behind him keeps making a rapping sound, a, a kind of a knocking sound that side note really reminded me, this is so crass, but reminds me a lot of the opening of Santana's Smooth um, uh, or of a Santana song. Maybe it's not that one, but, but that, that, that little note. Kind of and then Santana before. kind of comes on camera. <laughs> Rob Thomas shows up uh, to talk about the Iranian revolution. No. Um, it's a real deep cut, guys. Get us not me deep cut. <laughs> so, um, so a student keeps making this rapping sound and uh, teacher turns around. No one will admit to who is making the sound. So he punishes the entire back row of the class for no one admitting it. And they all stand out and sit in the hall. And the title refers to the two ways that this scenario plays out. Um, the first being that in the first case, the students are all standing in the hall. Um, they've been expelled from class and eventually one of them breaks from the group and says it was this kid. And in the second version, um, no one confesses uh, and they all kind of sit it out together. And what Kirasami does is after each of these sort of scenarios plays out, he has well, in the first case, he has interviews with some of the fathers of some of the boys um, and their opinions on the rightness or wrongness of no one admitting or confessing to who did this. Um, and then he also has uh, a series of interviews from, you know, uh, political figures, both pre and post revolution, because this is a film that he returns to after the revolution um, and some some major people in there. Um, uh, and uh, education experts, child psychology, artists, uh, journalists, etc. But the composite is this really, um, you know, I mean, I, I kept thinking of it in relation to Attica because the, first of all, one of the really interesting things is I don't know the extent to which Kirstami explicitly was asking people to reflect on the revolution. But what's clear is that there is no way that any of them could see this scenario and not immediately allegorize and talk about solidarity or not, um, to talk about uh, punishment, to talk about um, child psychology, or a range of things. But solidarity and working unity and um, betrayal, class betrayal, political betrayal, all of these things get, get discussed among the grownups in response to uh, Kurosami filming them watching these two scenarios. Um, I think this is really, first of all, this is a filmmaker whose work 
um, routinely astonishes and and overwhelms me um, and is always interesting for you know I mean I think the 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 educational context of some of his work, the classroom context, part of what that has always really provided throughout his work, whether or not it's tied to that for me is this deep abiding interest in uh, language and not just political expression, but the ways that people talk through, the ways that people respond to um, scenarios. Um, this is as true of certified copy to me as it is of this movie. Um, and the choices that people make and, and the ways that so many things are, can be rooted in ideology, but not necessarily always. Um, that's speaking about his work broadly. In this case, in this film, it's the, the ideological determination of the people speaking is, is pretty clear from the things that we see them saying and the ways we see them responding. But what you get is this really rich sense of the range of discourse the range of ways that people on the ground in Iran, but also people with political ties, people in the government um, are understanding what should, what I, what I think like to me wasn't an immediately, you know, sitting in 2021 in, the, in Brooklyn wasn't an immediately political scenario, <laughs> but the ways that they automatically see it in that lens and the the range of things that they all bring up this is like a 45 minute film but but the, the range of things that people bring up in the response to this it's it's completely fascinating i mean they're drawing on religious law they're talking about militancy they're talking about secret service my favorite was my favorite was like the dad who just refused to understand the question and just kept saying, my son, my son didn't do anything wrong. That's right. It. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and, and the line, you know, you shouldn't use children as spies. I mean, that's, that's, there's an ellipsis in there, but, but toward the end of it, uh, after seeing the second scenario, you get much more explicit, I think, kind of naming on what happens to left politics. Um, what what happened here and in the country as a response to this um, scenario? You know, I also you know um, Karsami's interest in faces in the children. Um, you know, after you hear the knocking for the first time, you get this this close up on some of the children's faces, and they're all kind of kind of sitting there. No one seems, no one else seems to have noticed the sound. No one's responding to it. There's there's really a lot of questions that I, you can see how people responding to it are immediately landing on these questions of complicity of knowledge. And also Kirastami never shows us the culprit. Yeah, right. Wait, I thought the culprit turned out to be the, the son of the guy who said that his son didn't. Right, but Kirastami never shows us who's rapping, right? So it's all- We know who the that. rat is. That's really, if we're thinking of like who the culprit is, uh, we know who the kid is who, who ratted out the other kid. But we, I, I don't think we actually know who actually did it. And I almost, I mean, I don't care because I'm, I'm kind of with the people who are like, who are like, I mean, the, there's, there's one voice in the film that's like, uh, after the second scenario, you know, it was acknowledging, you know, it was powerful that no one ratted the other kids out. But this is, I think, when I started to think about the fact that we were only hearing from the grownups in the room, because then I think the same guy is like, you know, it's too bad that they didn't have a, a kind of collective decision making um, about 
what they were, you know, that they didn't have discourse about what they were going to do, um, which is, I think, a moment where I'm thinking, well, absolutely. Also, they're how old could they be? They're 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 kids. Um, yeah. But thirteen or the so. line there, yeah, to see the line that he's drawing there, you know, it's clear that he's not really talking about just these kids. Um, I thought I I I I loved seeing this. Isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that a movie that is about the process of judgment has none itself? Is sort of an. I, I, I mean, that's often the case with his images. Is they're so removed, right? I mean, people use the word minimalism for him, which is a really weaselly way to talk about it because I can't think of a director who where there's more to take out of individual frames, right? I don't just mean that they're beautiful. I mean that they're they're packed with information and point of view and perspective. But I mean, in this film the judgments belong to the people and they certainly have judgments about each other, but the film is shot in a way that I don't think anybody is privileged by the film, right? Where there is nothing in the way it's shot or cut or seen or presented where the filmmaking is even nudging you a little bit to be like, well, everyone's got an opinion, but- To a clinical extent, to a clinical extent. Clinical I mean, the extent, fact that the yeah. film is divided into two parts called first case, second case. I mean it's even handed to that extent. It's, it's really remarkable. And I think, um, I mean, if I may, if I may explain why, why I picked it, uh, well, Cam wanted a Kurastami, which. Well, you've just written so beautifully on him for reverse shot. Thank you. I did. That's why I did say that'd be fun. Yeah. That's a great, that's a great, it's a great piece, by the way, the one that Cam is referring to. It's a great piece. Thank you. <laughs> and so I, you know, I went with it because I knew they would praise my essay on the podcast. So mission accomplished. Well, you made me want to talk to you about about his work. Um, you did give me other options, but this is this is the one that I wanted to talk to you about. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I'm, I have to say, I'm so glad you went with this one because it fits in so well with everything else we've been talking. You, you know, you said that there was this connection with Attica. What I love about this film, and actually a lot of Kirastami's work from that period, the early period, uh, when I mean, he really got his start as a filmmaker at the uh, Center for the Inte- Intellectual Development of Children and Young Adults, Kanun. So, so many of his early shorts and even his early features like um, Where's the Friend's Home, Homework, uh, Fellow Citizen, they come from there, right? And this, I mean, this is such an unusual institution. The project is to make films for you know this uh, children and and kind of pedagogical films or films about pedagogy which you know need not be the same uh but they're such mature and serious films you know they're not films that are necessarily designed for kids they're about kids and about childhood um and i think you can see where many of the themes that preoccupy him in his later films start you know this kind of the idea that pedagogy is not something that needs to be didactic uh, you know, the idea of how political life and regime changes and all these very uh, adult experiences and emotions diffuse into everyday lives, how order or authority is diffused into everyday life, you know, and everyday institutions. So I love that those works uh, of Kurosami's and this film you know, Cam, I think the connection with Attica is that this is a film that really captures how carceral 
schooling and the school system is and can be, I often feel like it's not something we talk about enough. It's not something that's explored in film enough. And maybe it is also, you know, something to do with uh, young countries or countries that have, uh, you know, governmental, big governmental changes where the population is undergoing that experience. When I was growing up in India, I mean, school, really school was such a carceral, like such a disciplinary, you know, place. And this exact thing happened when I was in seventh grade or something where they dismissed a whole grade because someone had, there was some prank in a restroom or something. And they said, either you tell us, either someone fesses up to it or you tell us who did it or the entire grade is dismissed for three days. And so I just remember having these, I mean, these were the moral questions that even in seventh grade, me and my classmates were, you know, what is the right thing to do here at that time? You know, I mean, we were raised to be sticklers and it was like, oh, why should everyone else lose their education because one person did something wrong? But these questions acquired that gravity. They acquired the political, you know, gravity of what is, what does this say about the nation? What does this say about law? What does this say about the constitution and legality? So the fact that Kirasami made it at that cusp, I mean, it's such an incredible political document, you know? I mean, he made it in 1979. He then, after the revolution, reshot some of the talking head segments with people in the new regimes. And, but still like very early, right? And he has people from across the political spectrum, like you said, Cam, I mean, he has leftists, he has Islamic lawyers and religious leaders. He has um, a Jewish leader, you know, he has communists and uh, nationalists. And many of them actually, you know, went, went on to suffer political repression. One of them was executed. One of them was the executor. <laughs> yeah, one of them became the hanging judge. Right. And so understandably, I think the film got banned and, you know, it resurfaced later on. Do you recall what the, if there, if the opinion of the, ex, of the opinions of the executed and the executor converged at all? Because I was struck by how consistent a lot of mm -hmm. those assessments were because almost everybody was like the children should stand in solidarity against the oppressor, the teacher who was an oppressor and made a, made a big mistake. I mean, the, my favorite was one guy literally says, you know, I, I'm glad that they didn't denounce their friend, but what they did wrong was they went back to school. They should have tried to overthrow the system. <laughs> He's like, why did they keep going back to school? I mean, this, what you were saying, Cam, this projection, I mean, they are projecting so much onto these children, children who are supposed to be in you know, a blank slate, it's the future of the nation, the future of their, I mean, for the fathers, like Clint, you were saying that guy who's like, just refuses to understand the premise of this exercise. My son is not the culprit. He's a good son. I work hard to send him to school they're all projecting their lives, their cultural, political, personal lives onto these kids. And they go so far in that projection, you know? And I think you get the sense that in a sense, they are right because this is the arena where children get the understanding of how society works and what is their proper place within it. But then it's also, you know, I mean, again, they're kids, they're, you know, responding to much more primal instinct than, uh, the adults are really giving them credit for or demanding from them. I kind of read it as sort of that the kids, the situation that the kids were in was almost 
entirely analogous to the political situation. Like there's no, like the kids are handling it exactly the same way that the parents would probably handle it. And that the kids, the pressures on the kids are almost, are, you know, maybe in different forms, but very much analogous to the pressures on the parents, the political pressures and yeah, which is what's actually, you know, makes it interesting that the, the guy who kind of refuses, you know, he, he doesn't understand the assignment. It, there's a way of thinking about it in which there's a camera trained on him. Someone's kid did something wrong and he's being asked about it. And he sort of wants to clear not just his kid, but himself. Because someone else in the film also says, you know, you can easily imagine uh, the kid who did do this, you can easily imagine, you know, what their home life must be like and the things they're learning. Um, and I, A, I can't easily imagine that based on so insubstantial a crime, but it is interesting to me that anyone would say that. I think it's also interesting. I mean, someone points out that, that what Kirsami leaves out of the scenario, it's interesting that someone notices this, is that the teacher doesn't take a moment to actually try to figure out who did it. We're relying entirely on the kids to self-report. We're relying on the kids to break rank. Um, we are enforcing this, this carceral pressure on the kids to participate in the carceral environment. Um, I mean, one of the interesting things that people say is, you know, if anything, this entire thing is a condemnation of the teacher because clearly the class was boring. Love that. Are they supposed to just sit and watch him draw? He was taking too long to make the drawing, I think they said. <laughs> He's up there doing his Picasso thing, and the kids are just like, we gotta get some music in. Here. He's also it's drawing like some sort of insane, like psychedelic tiger. It's a year. It's a year. He's drawing like the inside of a year. So there's like this whole like surveillance uh, you know themed it but I don't yeah I know Clint I don't know why he's drawing such a detail I mean he's shading the insides like different color chalk <laughs> yeah and I think that's also interesting like there's something patently fictional to the premise right I mean there are ellipses in the premise it's just it's very much a sketch it's schematic and and the fact that the we see the camera you know whirring between every few interviews, like you said, Cam, it's very clear that these are also people who are being watched. They often start by saying, is it ready? Should I start, you know, you know, asking if, if the camera is rolling. And I mean, Kirasami's entrenched preoccupation is see, being seen and seeing and, you know, the place of the camera and the, uh, you know, forming perceptions of ourselves through the gazes of, of others. And making his own apparatus visible in the context of an analysis of a school, a classroom in which the apparatus tries to make itself invisible. It tries to just be a classroom. This is just a punishment for a basic thing. But of course, as everyone seems to understand, no matter how they feel about it, it is much more than that. But there's a way in which the teacher and the scenario try to try to make that invisible. It, it puts the troublemakers, in quotes, out into the hall, just removes them from the class and, and tries to get them to do this independently when when Kurosami's filmmaking ethic is to you know leave in uh you know first case take four um you know is the camera running etc so I, I love that you chose this and I also love that I immediately was able to watch another of his shorts on YouTube I would definitely if people haven't seen it look at look at uh two solutions for one problem which is intense <laughs> 
which is intense uh, and a nice supplement to this. I find it just there you get some close-ups on children's faces where they're not even saying anything, but but just the ripping of someone's book is like is like this holy just you know a scandal. Yeah, when Adam said that people call Kiara Starmie a minimalist, I think more it's sort of like a miniaturist of these moral questions that we blow up into these you know, nation-sized problems. He focuses down and, and drills down until we have like this really basic moral question, uh, an elementary question, and then just kind of interrogates it and, and shows just how incredibly complex that moral question is and how they're, and again, by allowing the complexity to enter the film, as you mentioned, you know, take four, is this happening? The, the real world muddies the waters of these, of what seem to be really easy questions. But um, we, I think we have to now move on. Devika, I believe you, you're the last gifty remaining. I have to say, I'm so glad. I feel like, you know, this whole premise of movie gifts could have been used to inflict on each other, just like horrible or ridiculous, you know, movies or movies that's that another, that's the movie, other people will. We're saving that for movie punishments. That's true. A different, a different yeah. episode. <laughs> and it ended up just being these like deep cuts and, you know, uh, us like getting to fill in our blind spots. And I think it just turned out so well. And I'm just, I got really lucky that Clint gave me a comedy. Elaine May is a uh, blind spot of mine. I know she's been called a criminally overlooked director and I am one of those criminals. I have overlooked her, unfortunately. The thing is I've read so much about her. Her name is, you know, I've always uh, read about her work, about her comedy and just somehow never gotten around to watching, you know, all of her movies. So thanks Clint for making me watch A New Leaf, which was absolutely delightful. Oh my God. It was just like an hour and 40 minutes, which I know is way shorter than she intended it to be, but an hour and 40 minutes of pure serotonin. Um, I, if people haven't seen it, you know, it's her debut film, the debut film as a director, but she made with Paramount Studios in the beginning of her very, I believe, fraught uh, relationships with Hollywood and, and like tortured, uh, you know, just negotiations in getting films made, I guess, by virtue of being a really brilliant woman filmmaker at that time. And the film is about this guy uh, named Henry Graham, who's just, how do I even describe him? He's just like a dandy or? It's just like a associate. He's like, he's like American Psycho. Is how I think of it. He's just like an empty <laughs> suit. Of, of wealth who's in he I think he says at one point like all I am is rich he's rich yeah I have no skills what my aunt would call a rich bitch he is a rich bitch well I feel like even bitch gives him too much credit because a bitch he doesn't have personality at least in the start at the start of the film he's just this guy he's obsessed with this car he likes his you know very comfortable high class life and he discovers that he is bankrupt because the simple fact is he has spent more than he earns and there's a and, you know, hilarious sequence of his accountant trying to explain to him that he has no money. Much like Kiara Stami and the father. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So exactly. Funny. He's like, why don't you pay this check? And the account accountant is like, how else can I put the fact that you are broke? And he, uh, his butler, who is terrified at the prospect of not, you know, butlering for this uh, fastidious and prissy man, basically encourages him to find a rich wife and solve his uh, troubles. And he takes a loan from his uncle, who is just like some 
I mean, what a ridiculous caricature, just like some monarch who lives in, you know, in exile in Manhattan or something. I love how he he cuts a, he eats a banana with a fork and knife <laughs> at one point. Yeah, and has this as cigarette lighter, which is like a gold music box or something. Uh, but anyway, he takes a loan from his uncle uh, on the condition that within six weeks, he will be married and will have repaid that loan or lose everything he owns. So out he goes, this man with basically no interests, no charm. Uh, to look for a wife. So he comes upon this woman, played by Elaine May herself, Henrietta Lowell, who's a nervous wreck of a botanist. She's a nerd. She's obsessed with plants. Uh, she has no social graces. She's childlike and clumsy. And he, and you know, she doesn't have any relatives, lives in a giant house with a giant fortune, is a school teacher. Uh, and- did you explain that Henry's plan was to murder the wife that he married? So he's looking for somebody who's like, he can easily murder and get away with it. Marry and murder. Right. So that's his plan. And he he basically seduces her. Turns out to be not a very complicated affair. To that scene though, where, where they meet features, you know, one of my favorite lines, which is when he's being introduced to the other people at the tea party and they say, and they say, oh, have you met Cynthia and George Hitler? And he goes, oh, are you related to the Boston Hitlers? And they say, no, 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 no. We're from New, we're, we're a member of the, yeah, the Glen Cove Hitlers. And then they just move on, which I think is just after the first time I saw that this movie, that was like, I just could, would think of that line and chuckle. That and the, the line with where the, his butler says, uh, you are someone who in the course of their lifetime has managed to keep traditions alive that were dead long before you were born. <laughs> and I mean, the scene when, when he's told that he's, he is bankrupt and then he wanders through New York, say, you know, just saying, I Bye-bye. am poor. Bye-bye. I am poor. And he's just, you know, uh, touching the awnings of fancy restaurants. It's hilarious. And he meets, so he meets Henrietta and he, you know, has this plot that he's going to try and get rid of her somehow. Uh, but he goes about basically fixing her life. I mean, she, she can't do anything. She is, you know, she needs someone to dress her. There's a, amazing scene of him teaching her to put on a Grecian nightgown and I would say by the end it actually you know they find something they find something that works and they find some kind of place in each other's company can I butt in to make a very controversial non-hyperbolic statement about Elaine May to that everyone can jump off of she's probably the funniest person of all time she kills me I mean even even when they meet the way that she holds the tea and the yeah. saucer, physical comedy there, she kills like, me. There's, I... this, there's this subcategory of people. It's a weird way to describe it. It's like, they're only funny when they open their mouth and do stuff. But if they open their mouth and do stuff, they're just naturally the funniest person ever. I mean, even the way she furrows her brow and like balances her, her spectacles on her nose, every element of her performance is just, you know, exuding this this humor and comedy and what I really love about it I will say this so you know they get married and Henry basically realizes she can't do anything on her own and they go on this field trip and there's a point at which he's like I'll make the tea from now on and then she she messes up dinner and he's like I'll make dinner from now on and she says what will I do and he says you'll eat and I looked at my boyfriend because we were watching the movie and I was like, this is actually my fantasy. This is like all I want from life and a partner. 
But then his, he's current, he's scheming while doing that, that he's, he's going to kill her on that trip that he's going to like sure, murder but, her. But, you know, he, he, money. he grows into that role. Well, you know, I think it, I think it actually, it is ultimately sweet, but it's like, that's one of the failures of the movie. It's like, does it, or, I don't know. Maybe it does not a failure. Watching it this last time, I thought it was like, it kind of worked. Like how he kind of comes around at the end and is like falls in love. I thought, I thought it worked. I thought he was softening oh, yeah, through that. all of that. Like he had a purpose suddenly, you know, in straightening out this woman's life. And I don't know. I think for me, um, it's a very different vision of, you know, feminism. If I may bring the, the big F word in here, you know, um, this is like passivity. She's so passive, but that, you know, she gets basically this man attends on her. She can't do any anything on her own, but she sort of gets this perfect life out of it. You know, she she transforms this man, however convincing it may be. Uh, I was convinced. I think it applies to Elaine May's life and her role in this in making this film too. Like she did everything. She wrote the script. She was not, she originally just sold the script, but then was brought on as the director for like nothing, for no money. And then in order to save more money, she took the lead role, I think, right? The, the, the extent to which she was an insider and an outlier at the same time in that Hollywood community where she's absolutely one of the gang, you know, she's like, she's Mike Nichols' right-hand man as a comedy duo. She's close with Warren Beatty. She has the respect of everybody, but it's also like, you're going to write, direct, and star in a big studio movie. You're going to play the lead, first-time director, first-time female director. The, it's, so, the, it's so fraught. And she just, the confidence that, that she has as a filmmaker, even in the movies where she was undermined, because this one was cut, right? I don't know if you guys were going to go into that, but there's like a three-hour... Yeah, because it was supposed to be 180 minutes I, from what I was reading, and then they cut... 80 whole minutes i'm very curious what was cut do you do any of you know i mean what murder was- there are two murders of murders. like of the lawyer right yeah i think her lawyer uh henrietta's lawyer and like other people who are threatening his scheme but i do think that the original version also had them kind of ending up together well you like you see that and you compare it to the heartbreak kid the next year which is such a tight script which is my maybe my favorite movie i think it's great it's a great movie you know i mean that's a great great movie but very differently structured and made than the new leaf because it's got that neil simon mechanism of the script where the script is perfect the script in new leaf isn't perfect but there's more of her sensibility in it i think in heartbreak kid it's a wonderful mix of her and neil simon but you know new leaf is just is just her well, Heartbreak Kid is, is like this disciplined, this is like kind of grotesque and there's all the, it's like cartoonish and there's all these shots where that you have like somebody's face smashing into the camera basically. And then there's this deep focus. Oh, there's an amazing shot of his uncle laughing and you see Henry's face through his uncle's mouth. I mean, almost something like, you know, the Soviet images of grotesque, um, you know, the grotesque elite, it's almost like that or um silent comedy or something but when you say elaine may's sensibility it's almost like the movies that she's made are hard to yes her sensibility comes through across the the four features mikey and nikki is the other one heartbreak kid and uh ishtar oh, no. her sensibility is she's interested in weak men yeah male vanity mm-hmm. male male vanity sorry cam what are you saying very smart about it she's she's very smart about the vanity of men that is that is the link. You know, I also 
one thing her performance here gives me, I, first of all, I actually always find the end of this film pretty overwhelming. Um, you know, the scene in the river and the question of what he's going to do um, because all roads to me, even though there are things about him that change, it's not like a total makeover. Cause even, you know, toward the end of the film, she's like hanging off a cliff and he's reading about poison to kill her with. And he's gonna, he would, he would probably at that point in the film, let her fall. But um, there's something in the end that I find kind of heartbreaking, which is that her performance is telling me that, she, I mean, and I think there's also kind of dialogue to this effect she knows that she's not the one for him. I don't know if she knows that he's like actually literally trying to kill her. Uh, I think maybe I would assume he was just trying to marry me for my money, but even that's sort of demeaning. But, but I, I, she breaks my heart in this. I have to be honest. You know, I, I think it's a pretty, uh, I, I get kind of swept away literally as, as, as she does at the end, because I, I really wonder what's gonna happen for this woman and what the consequence of male vanity is going to be for her um, and for her to play the role in the way that she does, um, who really could be blown over by a light gust of wind and drop everything, <laughs> you know, drop all the tea and glasses go flying and everything. Um, I really just feel this sense of, uh, you know, not just don't kill her, but also I, I find it harrowing. It's kind of interesting to think about what you're saying, though, in, con in the context of what Adam was saying about how, like, her films are about these weak men. The women in her films are not necessarily strong women. Jeannie Berlin or in uh, Heart in Heartbreak Kid, I don't know. Right, or Mikey and Nikki, the um, the the woman that I forget if it's Mikey or Nikki because I forget which one is which, but. Um, you know, she, she, she like goes from the vanity of men to the humiliation of women. Um, she finds, she finds through lines there that are very powerful to me. That's what I, I was trying to get at earlier about what's so moving and striking about this film is that the character, the character of the woman is, I mean, she's completely helpless. She's completely ridiculous and helpless, you know, and that isn't demean, that doesn't come off as a demeaning depiction to me and you know cam that's a very interesting read you know that you you found the ending harrowing i just from the beginning found him so harmless i mean he was too cartoonish for me to ever take him seriously and maybe that's why i i found the ending sweet now that you mention it i'm like man maybe i should be scared for her but it's like i don't think she really cares about him either she wants to just do her botany and discover plants and write her papers and she's now got a guy to look after her accounts and but she names the gray hammy after him but i see that as canny i see that as canny uh, to be fair she also doesn't know any she also doesn't know any other people but i mean she's a she's like one of the she's a screwball heroine either in reverse or in slow motion or in reverse slow motion right where she's wealthy and insulated and to some extent naive but like you look at Catherine Hepburn and bringing up baby which is not a bad double bill with a new leap everything about that character is is active and controlling and powerful and chaotic and catastrophic you know I mean she's not passive and, and, and sexual you know I mean a, a new leaf is a new a new leaf is all those things in reverse though it does reach certain of the same conclusions of that in other great screwball comedies which is the idea that opposites attract the person who you 
can't imagine yourself with is perfect for you. And also in the end, wealth will insulate you because at the end of the film, there's no loss of that. There, there's no loss of that wealth. There's no loss of that insularity. The movie is critical of it, but it, uh, it, it also, it, it, it kind of, I don't know, it, it, it gives it a bit of a safe landing spot. That's why having it out in nature is so amazing at the end because all those signifiers of first class and the money that he's lost or the money that she's had, then you don't see them anymore. And when Cam says he finds the end overwhelming, I actually got to see this movie on a big screen when Tiff did an Elaine May series. And my friend Lydia took me to like a special Tiff screening of it. And I'll tell you, people don't think about Elaine May as a visual filmmaker because it's such a lousy word anyway. And there's an implicit sexism to that too, where people are like, oh, the, her scripts are good. You know, her boy, her actors are good. You watch a new leaf properly on a big screen with that stuff at the end with the river and the water. I mean, it's amazing. And quite, quite visceral and 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 powerful, you know. Um, it's a it's a it's a it's a movie made to be seen big as much as any other movie that you might say that about more. Tenant. Tenant. Yeah. Interstellar. Yeah. Can we get Zack Snyder on? Can we get the Snyder crew to like a new reveal leaf. the the Elaine May cut? Yeah. Oh God! Set the hounds on. Set the Snyder hounds on. Oh, I use that power for good. Yeah. I, I, I'm down with that. Mikey and Nikki too, please. Is there is there a, a cut of that that has disappeared? Well, isn't I mean, is Mikey and Nikki is compromised? Didn't, didn't she shoot something like millions of feet of film on Mikey and Nikki? Yeah, something insane. And I want to see all of it. Yeah, the fa- <laughs> the famous thing is the cameraman called cut after uh, after Cassavetes and Peter Falk like wandered off out of the shot, and she said, "What are you doing?" And the, and the cameraman said, "I they left the shot like they're not in they're not on." they're not in the shot anymore and she said yeah but they might come back i think they're going to come back <laughs> they'll be making their way back and i return to literally the funniest person of all time for yeah. saying that so i think you're right i think it was a good case to be made all right so that was great guys thank you so much and they're on a laugh i mean i think yeah was... on a laugh. thank you clint <laughs> that was fun guys thank you that was fun and we'll do a punitive version of this later you know, but not gift. It's it inflictions on each other. So. Oh, I would, I would. I, There's so many bad movies I could give Cam to watch. You have no idea. But are you sure that I would hate them? No, that's true. I'm not sure. <laughs> Thank you both for joining. Thank you both. See you guys soon. Bye. See ya. Bye bye. This episode of the Film Comment Podcast is sponsored by Mubi and made possible by our subscribers and by the members and patrons of Film at Lincoln Center. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of Film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.